Well, there's a man that I admire. He just recently retired from the church that he has pastored in Nashville for many years. His name's Ray Ortland. And anything you can find by him, the books he's written, sermons he's preached are safe and they're good and they'll edify you, they'll encourage you, and they'll help you. But he has kind of a mantra at his church. And you may, you may think it's funny, you may think it's offensive, but he says this all the time. He says three things about this church and his leadership. One, I'm a complete idiot, he says. <laughs> Two, the future is incredibly bright. And three, anybody can get in on this. And I just love that. I love that. And as I read Psalm 3, and as you just heard Diane read it, that could very easily form kind of a little outline that, of what this psalm says. Because you'll see in a minute, King David wrote this psalm. This is the first psalm that has the author's name ascribed to it. And that's inspired. It tells us who wrote it, when he wrote it, and why he wrote it. And David wrote this years and years after he had, had been king in Israel, and he had made some, some really tragic mistakes and destructive decisions and sins. He had sinned against God, and he's facing some of the fallout from that. You know, David had repented as we're called to repent. But even when you repent, and the Bible says seasons of refreshment come from that, repentance is not a dirty word. It's a good thing for Christians. We repent the rest of our life. We still mess up, don't we? We still deviate and make bad decisions and give in the temptation and we repent. And sometimes with that repentance comes consequences that we have to face. God doesn't always remove the consequences. He removes the guilt. He removes the guilt. That's the most important thing. He removes his wrath and his eternal punishment for our sins. But sometimes we have to face those consequences. And David, when he wrote this psalm, he's facing consequences from his sins. So that first thing that Ray says, I'm a complete idiot. David was an idiot at times in his in his. You know, him being a man after God's heart, that didn't make him immune from pressures that he was surrounded by. So we're going to talk about those three things, and I'm going to put them, I'm going to put them uh, in a different outline. It's the, the outline for the sermon this morning is, number one, the pressures that we all face. Every single person in this room, Christians included, Christians maybe especially, you are surrounded by pressures. At any given point in your life, if you were honest and vulnerable, you would spill the beans and tell us, man, I just feel closed in on the pressures we all face. And the second point is the peace or the protection, you could say, that we all experience. And then the third one is the priorities we all face. Uh, so we're going to talk about those three things together. Um, this, this, this psalm is amazing, and, and I love it. And many of you could say this with that first point. You have pressures that are unique to you that maybe nobody else could understand unless they walked in your shoes. There's an old story, it's a Greek story that Cicero told, and it's about a powerful king, king named Dionysius. And he was a powerful ruler, ruled with an iron fist. He made many enemies, so he was paranoid, man. He slept in a bedchamber that was surrounded by a moat. Only his daughters could shave his beard with a razor. He didn't trust anybody. But his kingdom was big and he was powerful. And he had wealth and a lot of servants, but there was this flatterer that was in his court, and his name was Damocles. And he would always flatter the king and say, oh, king, you're so amazing. You're so wonderful. It must be so amazing to be king. He was like Tom Petty, you know, oh, to be king for a day, just for a day. He said, I can't imagine all, having all this wealth and this food and this wine and, you know, anyone you want at your beckoning call. And Dionysius got tired of it. And he said, look, you want to you taste this? You want to be king for a day and see what it's like? Fine, you're going to be king for a day. And you remember this story. 
So he, he ushered him in and sat him on a golden couch and had the servants bring the finest food in the kingdom, the finest wine in the kingdom, serve him, get one of those palmetto branches, I guess they had over there and, and wave it in his face, you know. He was living it up. But then he noticed above him, dangling from the ceiling, suspended by one hair from a horse's tail, was a razor sharp sword right above Damocles' head. Have you heard this? It's called the sword of Damocles. And when he saw that sword, his joy was done. He said, I, I, I don't like this. And he said, oh no, no, buddy, live it up. It's great to be king, isn't it? Don't you love this wealth and this power? Isn't it awesome? And he's like, no, 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 I want out. He goes, no, 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 no. You're going to be king for the whole day. Well, eventually he begged and they, he was dismissed and ushered away. And he said, I don't know how you do it. But listen, you don't have to have a crown on your head to feel the pressure and the weight that the uh, mythological Damocles did. Some of you feel like right now maybe you're hanging by a thread. You're just like inches away from sanity or insanity, right? Look at what David says here in verse 1. This is pretty incredible. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Do you hear that word repeated? Many. Many, many, and it's personal. They're saying about me, they're my enemies. They're not just enemies out there, vague, ambiguous, generic. No, this is, this is very personal. These are my enemies, and they're everywhere. They're all over the place. I'm sur I feel surrounded by enemies. And again, if you'll notice, it's up on the PowerPoint, I love when a psalm has a subscription. Do not ignore those guys. Those are rich. This will take your uh, psalm reading from 720p to like 1080i or where they have 4k now, right? It's pixelated or it's black and white and then it's in color because listen, you know who wrote the psalm? David wrote it. You know when he wrote it? Much later after he had been king for many years and had children. And you know why he wrote it? Look, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, man, I got this... I'm, I have tried all week to put myself in David's shoes. You, you want to talk about, this is a global crisis. It's, it's a national catastrophe for David because he's a king ruling over a kingdom and there's a mutiny. There's like rebellion. There's a coup. This is like treason. This is betrayal, treason, mutiny. Those words don't even capture what this is. This is a national disaster because somebody's trying to unthrone the king. They're trying to knock the king off. There's a hit put out on David's head. That's bad enough. That's a national disaster. If somebody threatens the president, don't even put that in an email as a joke, by the way. <laughs> You're going to have an FBI agent knocking on your door, right? If you put, oh, I'd like to assassinate the president, and then you hear, <laughs> they got the government's watching, right? But this is much deeper than that because this is the king's son. This is the king's son. Now, can you imagine? First of all, can you ima imagine the embarrassment? You're the king and you got enemies and it just happens to be the, the son that you raised or maybe that you didn't raise. And you know what the people are probably whispering behind their, man, David's losing control. He can't even control his own family. How in the world is he going to control the kingdom here? He's like surrounded by pressure. Like the David Bowie song, too much pressure, right? It's like everywhere. It's all around him. But listen, you don't have to have a crown on your head. You don't have to be sitting on a throne to feel the personal weight of what he's saying here. Because if we're honest, all of us feel surrounded. And maybe there's a parallel here. Maybe it's like 
deep and personal betrayal that you felt. I was reading the other day about George Washington and Benedict Arnold. Does that, does that name mean anything to you? When you hear Benedict Arnold, what do you think of? Traitor, turncoat. That's exactly what happened. In 1780, Benedict Arnold decided to sell out the American military. He had earned George Washington's trust with his many exploits early on in the Revolutionary War, but he was passed over for a promotion for a lot of reasons, and he grew angry and bitter and resentful. So he convinced George Washington to give him control of West Point. You know what, what that is? That's one of the biggest military academies in the United States now, but it was at its seed form back then. It was a very important fort. It was like a, a decisive factor. If you took that fort, the war was basically yours. The battle was over. So he convinced Washington. He signed a treaty of loyalty, recited it, and signed it, said, I will be loyal no matter what. And he gained control of West Point Academy, and then he secretly sold it out to the British forces. And the very men that he had commanded he switched sides in the middle of the war and fought against them. Benedict Arnold, traitor. Have you ever felt deep, personal, and resentful hurt like that from somebody close to you? I have. I would imagine every single person sitting in here, if you're old enough, you could testify to that. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's a parent or a sibling or an uncle or aunt. Maybe, maybe it's you were abused as a child, somebody that you trusted when you were so vulnerable and innocent sexually molested or just verbally abused or maybe it's not even that maybe it's just you feel surrounded by unpaid bills I mean man, I just I just got to say this man I'm reading this psalm that was written thousands of years ago and the Bible just comes so alive to us for the people that say I just, just need to shake the hayseed out of your hair pastor this ain't got nothing for me that's relevant I'm like dude have you actually read this <laughs> not relevant what are you talking about like, I could very easily have written this psalm last week. I'm not, I'm not complaining or saying things are bad. I'm just saying at any given moment, don't you feel surrounded by, by enemies, personal enemies, and like inanimate enemies, unpaid bills, like this diagnosis that's hanging over your head, like that sword, or a second opinion? I mean, what is it with you? I don't mean like, what is it with you? I mean, what is it with you? I mean, better grammar, emphasize, inflection, it's important. What is it with you? What's the pressure that surrounds you? Because we all have it. You know, uh, Job, in the Old Testament, he said something once. He said, man or woman is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. He compared the troubles we experience, even as God's children, to sparks in a campfire. You ever sat around a campfire outside the city limits when there's no aura of lights? And maybe even you have a kid that throws something at it or kicks it or pokes it and ashes just, psh, they go up into the night sky. They're just everywhere. And Job says, we're just as full of trouble as a campfire like that. And don't you feel that, guys? Even though you're redeemed in Christ and you're blood-bought and you're justified and you're cleansed and you're adopted and you belong to God and he belongs to you, you still got trouble. David was a man after God's own heart and trouble faced him on every side. Pressure everywhere. And we're no different. We are no different. We are surrounded. We feel it. I actually wanted to read just a little bit uh, about the history of what happened with Absalom, just in case some of you aren't fresh up on your Old Testament reading. This is a really interesting story because Absalom, man, he stole the kingdom right out from under his father. It says that he went and got himself 
some chariots and 50 men to run with him. Apparently back then you were legit. That was like a BMW, I guess. If you had a chariot and 50 men to run alongside you, like you were it, man. You were in. That was like an Instagram account with like 200 followers or something. I don't know. So he went and got himself a chariot and a bunch of men to follow him around. And you know what he did? Listen to the, the, how conniving this guy was. This is David's own flesh and blood. He would camp outside of the kingdom. And people back then, if you had a problem, you had to go to the palace, okay, to see your politician and get it worked out. And people would come from all different parts of the kingdom. And they would come to see the king and Absalom would say like, oh, well, hold up, where, where are you coming from? And they'd say, well, you know, I live down in South Judea and we just got some issues legally we need to work out. And he's like, I'm sorry, the king's so busy. He can't see you today. He's backed up. This is a real pity, man. If I were king, oh, man, I'd see you right. We'd get this matter settled. I'd send you on your way with justice. But, you know, David's the king, and he's busy. And, man, he's got, you know, he's building statues of himself. And he did that. And look what the Bible says happened. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. He stole their loyalty. Right under the nose of his naive father. Because David had no idea this was happening. And then a little bit later on, Absalom's planning this rebellion. He's planning to go out of town. And he's calling all of his loyal followers to come with him. And he tells them, whenever I blow the trumpet, everyone basically say, long live Absalom the king. And he says, Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew what? strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So if you want to read about this later on the Lord's Day, for a Lord's Day meditation, read it. Absalom stole like King David's right-hand counselor, like the guy was never wrong, had discernment. It was like the presidential advisor except for a king. Absalom got him, and it's like David finds out, and it's like the whole kingdom is, go is going with Absalom. And you talk about a gut punch if you were the king and somebody says, king, I have, I have bad news. And he's like, okay, what is it? Philistines, Malachites, Moabites, what is it today? They're like, no, no, they're, they're all conquered. They're at bay. Kingdom borders are safe. No, this is something interior. And he goes, oh, no, what is, what is it? And they're like, it's, it's actually Absalom, sir. He goes, what, is he hurt? And they're like, oh, no, he's, he's quite alive and, and very healthy. And he actually wants your kingdom. He wants the throne. And, and, and your, your majesty, he's planned a rebellion, and it seems like over half the kingdom is with him. Can you imagine? <sighs> Gut punch. Have you ever felt like the air just left your lungs? Have you ever heard news like that? You picked up the phone? I have. Even as a teenager, I remember phone calls that came to our family like that. Or the doctor walks in the room and says, I have... I had the news from the biopsy. Or maybe just trauma or tragedy that you experience with your family. And man, it just takes the breath. It takes the life right out of you. You're like, I, would, I just want to die, right? I just want to be done. I cannot endure this. Well, listen, listen to how it, uh, excuse me. Listen to how it went with David. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with them at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like David? Let's run. Let's get out of here. Doesn't sound like David at all. This is the man that's killed his tens of thousands? This is the warrior of Israel? This is the guy that you... I talked to a Navy SEAL once who was a Christian who knew the Old Testament. I said, dude, you're a Navy SEAL. You could kill me with your pinky or something like that, right? He was like, yeah, you with probably my pinky 
now. <laughs> and I said, knowing what you know about David and the 30 mighty men, would you square off with David? He said, not on your life, man. Not on your life. I said, no, even the anointing of God aside and all of that, just physical. He said, my best day, man, he would take my head off. This is David, man, and he says, we're getting out of Israel. Why? Because that's his son. He doesn't want to fight his son. You probably wouldn't either. And honestly, that's a weakness for David. That's another sermon for another day. He was too soft on his kids. Not saying you got to be hard on your kids, but there was no discipline, no structure. I'm learning a lot about that these days. Well, that's another sermon for another day. Just stand by, all right? <laughs> he says, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring us down, bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So he's worried for the city. He's like, I'm not gonna fight my son and I'm not gonna put my people in jeopardy. I've already done enough to them with that thing with Bathsheba. And he's feeling this is maybe God's chastening him still, which it actually wasn't. This was, that's a, that's a really long, maybe shouldn't have introduced that. This is when, when he repented, God told David, because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from you. And it was done. His repentance was done and the consequences were done. And David's facing these. David's already repented. He's walking with God, but this was kind of the consequences. He's facing the sword and that sword was his own son's rebellion. So listen to this, 2 Samuel 15, David is leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the holy city. And this is terrible, man. You read this and you just want to weep. It's like if you could just use your sanctified imagination and be there. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He's leaving Jerusalem, running for his life with all of his followers, weeping as he went, barefoot, sign of great shame, and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. And then it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Again, that's his right-hand guy. And um, just imagine just the gut punch. David's like, man, I guess God just wants to take my throne and it's his. He can have it. I'm not going to fight this. We are all surrounded with pressure, if we were honest. And, and that's what Jesus promised us would happen, right? In this world, you will face what? tribulation. But then he says, but be a good cheer. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Paul says that everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, yes, they will suffer what? Persecution. And I want to look a little bit deeper before we move on. Look at, look at verse, uh, look at verse two. If you'll notice, this is not just a national disaster, personal betrayal. This is persecution too. Because David is a man after God's heart. He's repented. He's trying to walk with God again and restore his relationship. And Satan doesn't want that for him or for you. And neither do the enemies of the cross. And look what they're saying. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. See, they're mocking and they're ridiculing David's faith in God. So part of this is personal. Part of this is persecution because of his faith in God. And Jesus promised us the same thing and so did Paul. If you're going to walk with God, you're going to suffer, friends. There's a cost for it. Whatever pressures you already face, just the reality of living in a fallen world, when you come to Jesus, those pressures sometimes don't go away. They intensify. Have you felt that? I have. I have never in my life felt spiritual battle, the intensity of it, the way I did when we planted this church. Never in my life 
have I ever faced anything like that. I could tell you stories, and I'm not, I don't see demons behind every bush. I'm not that kind of person. But I could tell you stories of things that have happened to me, especially, interestingly enough, the nights before I preach on prayer that would make your hair stand on end. Things my little, little kids that weren't even old enough to comprehend what they were saying, things that were coming out of their mouth, and I'm like, oh, my word. This is like the enemy. Intense pressure. But that's, that's, thankfully, we don't stop there. David's surrounded. He's surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by pressure. He's surrounded by trouble. And I will guarantee you, if I open the floor for testimony, there'd be, every hand in here would go up and say, me too, pastor, me too. Can you help me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. God can. Check this out. Point two, the peace we can all experience. Not only the pressure that we all face, but the peace, or you could say protection, that we all experience. So check this out. I'm going to do something a little bit weird. I'm going to jump a couple of verses, okay? I can do that because I'm the pastor. So go with it. Look here. (laughs) Psalm 3 verse 1 says, Many are my foes rising against me, saying of my soul there's no salvation for him and God. And then check out verse 5. And be amazed. I lay down and slept. Now hold on. Time out. (laughs) Time out. What in the world is going on here? (laughs) I mean, you just read what I read, right? Sons rebelling, betrayal, mutiny. He's trying, Absalom wants to kill his dad. Make no mistake, okay? He wants his dad dead. He wants daddy dead and off the throne and that crown on his head. And half the kingdom has gone with him. And David's running for his life. And I'm leaving out a lot of stuff. The advisor came and told David, hey, look, they're planning to ambush you tonight. They know you're tired. They know you're weak. They know you're sad. You're going to set up camp in the wilderness, and their plan is to find you and ambush you and surprise you and take you out, and then the whole thing's over. So David, he left Jerusalem. He's tired. Can you imagine the emotional strain? And they finally find a place to set up camp. And this is, use your sanctified imagination. Here's David. It's night. He's afraid. He's paranoid. He went out, and he wrote this psalm. I believe that night. And he said, God, my enemies are all around me. And then he jumped a couple of verses later and he said, I'm going to sleep. What the heck? Now, I want, it's okay to read the Bible this way. Don't you want to get there? <laughs> don't you want to get there? When you're surrounded by all this stuff, that you say, I'm going to bed. And listen, don't make any mistake. This is not David being apathetic. This is not David saying, oh, that's it. That's it. That's, this is not David driving the car and there's traffic everywhere and saying the heck with it and just taking his hand off the wheel and saying, Jesus, take the, take the wheel. And wherever you want to go in oncoming traffic, I don't care. This is not David being crazy or, or in the corner of his tent giggling with drool going down his beard. He hasn't lost it. He hasn't lost his sanity. No, my friends, David is, is more sane right now than he's ever been. Something's happened to him. And you'll notice it doesn't say, I lay down and I slept because I had chamomile tea and cedar oil and lavender and I took some melatonin. That's not what he did. That sometimes helps, by the way. That's, an, that's another sermon for, you know, WebMD or whatever. But uh, no, that's not what happened. David is experiencing in the midst of this crisis, both national and personal, this con- it's like there's a hurricane. You know, hurricanes, um, hurricanes are crazy things, man. They can have the, the wall, the inner wall of a hurricane Sometimes there's winds in there up to 200 miles per hour, I've been told. But if you get in the direct center of a hurricane, do you know it's like as calm and peaceful? I bet it's spooky. For the, I don't know if any ship's been caught in the middle of a hurricane in, at ocean, 
but I bet it's like calm, serene, tranquil, and like a little bit eerie and spooky. Because you know you're surrounded by all this wind and weather, and if you go too far into the wall, you're, zip, you're done, right? That's why I love Megan's graphic that she made for this. It's perfect. But no, something has happened to David. Something's changed here. And listen, friends, when you read your Bible and you read a psalm like this, don't just skip over that. No, say, stop the press, man. Hit the pause button, pull the car over, go get another cup of coffee, whatever you got to do, and say, I got to get to the middle of this. God's after me right now. God wants to show me something critical about what it means to live the Christian life when you face pressure. So look what he says, verse 3. Or excuse me, sorry, verse 5. I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. No, David didn't let go of reality. David is grabbing a hold of something here. He wakes up and the next, he, he prayed his prayer. He wrote a psalm. He went to bed and he says, I woke up. I'm not afraid anymore. I don't have any more fear. I don't have anything to be afraid of. Well, it, Absalom must have surrendered then, right? <laughs> All those people that went with Absalom must have came and they were waiting outside the camp when the sun came and they said, David, your majesty, we're so sorry. Please forgive us. That's not what happened. And look, I just want to say this. This is just a freebie. This is just a marginal footnote here, okay? If you've been at this church very long, you've heard me talk about, and I, hopefully it's not become a dead horse or a drum that I beat, there are people out there, Christians, pastors, leaders, teachers that have influence and, and they have a measure of authority and they have a following and they're going to tell you things about the Christian life that are just are not true. They're going to make to you promises and say that they came from the Bible, things that God supposedly, allegedly said to you that he actually didn't say. Because listen, God doesn't always remove your problems. He doesn't always take the cancer away. He doesn't always make the, the infertile wife fertile. He doesn't always bring the single who is looking to be married a spouse. You don't always hit more home runs or win the championship game or get the new car or the teenage uh, rebel that, that's in your house doesn't always get his heart right. That doesn't always happen. And sometimes preachers and Christians make promises that say if you follow God or if you have enough faith, you know, it's like this little equation, more faith, equals this, this payoff. And that's just not always true. So I don't want you to mis misunderstand this psalm. Absalom didn't repent and he didn't surrender to his dad. In fact, if you read the story, the hostility got worse and there was this all-out battle that happened the next day in the woods and Absalom had to get killed. Joab, David's commander, had to kill Absalom. He never repented. No, something else changes here and it's David's perspective changes. Something changed in David See, he had enemies out there that were very real and weighty to him and heavy. But something else replaced those. There was something else more weighty, heavier, and more real and alive to David than his enemies. And friends, this, I cannot stress how important you're going to find. This is just one pattern early in the psalm book that you're going to find played out over and over and over and over again. Because check this out. Uh, the peace we can all experience... Yeah, maybe I'll jump to the last point. No, no, let's stay here for a minute. The peace we can all experience. What happened? What changed? Look at verse 3 here, okay? But you. 
If you are a kind of underlining person, underline that in your Bible. Foes are all around me. They're many, they're many, they're many. They're persecuting me. They're mocking me. They're ridiculing me. It's my own son. But you, but you, Lord. See, he's looking at this. It's big. It's this storm. It's overwhelming. It's all around him. And then he notices something in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're a shield about me. David was surrounded in more ways than one, right? Kyle mentioned that earlier in the worship set. We're surrounded by enemies. We're surrounded by pressure, by trouble. Maybe we're surrounded by tragedy and bad news that we just can't shake. We're reliving that trauma over and over. I hear people that have experienced severe trauma that maybe even gives them PTSD, and they relive it. They saw it maybe, and they're reliving it over. They're playing this endless videotape in their mind. And like, that's their truth. That's what they set their clock to. That's the center of their gravity. They can't, they cannot get it out. That was what was going on with David, but then something else replaced that. Something else happened. And what is it? Look, look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Man, I, I'm telling you the truth, guys. We could spend the rest of this year unpacking what all of that means. Those three things. You're my glory, my glory. Not just the glory or a glory. You are my glory. You know what glory means in Hebrew? It's a word, kabod. And it means literally weighty, heavy, majestic. Because there's something that's true of every human being in this auditorium right now. Every single person in here, without, I don't care whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, you're mature, immature, young, old, male, woman, whatever. Everybody in this auditorium, you have a glory. That's your glory. It's the weightiest, heaviest thing in your life. It's the center of your gravity. It's the thing that defines you. It's the thing that you feel makes you count. It's the thing you feel makes you worthy. What gets you not kicked off the island at the end of the episode, okay? It's the thing that matters to you. It's the thing that you most want people to know about you when you meet them for the first time. It's what gives you identity. It's what, it's what makes you feel valuable and worthwhile. Every single person in here has one. And I will tell you this right now, if it's not God, eventually it's going to eat you alive. You just stand by and you wait. If you do not make Jesus Christ your glory, and he wants to be, he is, he's promised that, the heaviest and weightiest and most majestic thing. If he's not in the center and something else is, is, I don't care how good it is, it's your spouse, it's your kids, it's your grandkids, it's your beauty, it's your wealth. And you can hear, if you listen, people's glory slips out all the time. It's maybe, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm a vegan. <laughs> or, hi, I'm so-and-so and I got 16 kids. Or, hi, I'm so-and-so and I don't have any kids. People's glory slips out. That's the thing they're most proud of. I'm so-and-so, and you notice my bicep there when we shook hands, Hoss? <laughs> Everybody's glory slips out. Or maybe it's your grandkids, or I mean, whatever it is. Maybe, it's the, maybe you're an antique car collector, and it's that 69 Mustang in the garage. I mean, everybody has a glory. Everybody does. Because God made us that way. He made us to have something at the center that we orbit our lives around. And listen, when something is meant to be at the center, and it's there, oh man, everything's right. Everything's in its planet or proper orbit, right? You know, do you know that the moon is just a piece of rock? You know that? 
and the earth is at the center of the moon. The moon actually revolves around the earth. Somebody, I think I'm right here, aren't I? That's right, aren't I? Okay, should have double-checked this. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. Yeah, the earth is a planet, and, and the moon is our moon, and it circles around the earth. Um, if the moon decided one day, like, you know what? I'm sick of this circling around the earth thing. I'm going to put something else at the center and revolve all my existence around that. You know what would happen? Disintegration would happen. Wreckage, pain, death, disaster. That's what would happen. And everyone in here can, can testify to that. When you're a Christian and you start to slowly drift, and it happens. You don't have to plan this, guys. This, this will happen if you don't fight against it. It will. It's a good time of the year to talk about this. Something else will happily eclipse and replace the one glory in your life. Something will become more weightier and more majestic and heavier to you than God. For David, I think, I think it was his reputation as a king. And he's seeing all these enemies and he's hearing they're jeering and they're mocking and they're ridiculing him and making fun of him. And he's like, I'm surrounded. I'm surrounded by this. But he stopped. He got alone. He got quiet. He got still. And he started thinking about God and his relationship to God. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are my glory. You're the weightiest thing to me. You're the thing that matters the most to me. You're the thing that's never failed me. You're the thing that at the end of the day, I can say, you know what? No matter what else, I've got God and he's got me. You're my glory. You're my shield. And you're the lifter of my head. Man, that phrase is so beautiful in Hebrew. Do you know what I call this when David had to leave Jerusalem and it says he was barefooted, he hung his head, his head was uncovered, he was weeping and all the people were weeping with him. Now, what's the one word that would describe all of that? What? Shame. That's David's like walk of shame. It really is. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's basically, it's, it's a silent banishment. David's done, and it was the good years were fun. It's been fun, David, and we wish it could have lasted longer, but you're done. God's done with you, and now it's time to usher in a new era. I almost feel like the Lion King, where lion and hyena dwell together. No, no, no. It's, it's a new era where your son's going to replace you, right? And he's ashamed, man, and he's hanging his head. And look what he says over here. He says, wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on a minute. God's the lifter of my head. You know God does that when you're ashamed, when you're afraid, when you're embarrassed? You know what Jesus do, does when he cleanses you? See, David had repented of his sin. And it's almost as if God came along and grabbed David and lifted his head. And he said, hey, you don't have anything to be ashamed of. You don't have anything to hide. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to fear. You don't have anything to lose. And see, when, when that happened to David, everything changed. Everything changed. He said, that's right. That's my truth. See, that's more weighty to him than the other things that were surrounding him, right? That became his, what he set his spiritual watch to. And see, that's where God wants all of us to be. But listen, guys, that doesn't just happen automatically. You don't just drift into that. You have to fight against it. There's a story. I think I have it in here. There is a story um, in the Old Testament yeah, there's a story in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah uh, and his servant. And I believe it's the, the king of Syria is, is angry at them and sending soldiers after them. And they basically put a hit on this prophet, right? 
And so they send the warriors out there and, and check this story out. This is so powerful, man. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, this king did, and they came by night. And what's that word? They surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, it's interesting to me, the, the, the prophet didn't get up and go outside and look. He's not at the blinds looking out. He's sleeping because he knows. He knows something that his servant doesn't. So the servant probably didn't sleep all night. He's paranoid. He wakes up. He's going and looking out. And finally, the sun comes up and the servant of the man of God rose early and he went out and it says, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. What is he? He's surrounded enemies everywhere. We're done. And he runs back and he goes, Elijah, oh, Elijah, alas, my master, what shall we do? And what did Elijah say? He said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Man. <laughs> Sometimes we need a Christian to tell us this, a seasoned, wise, mature Christian to say, hey, buddy, come here. <laughs> This is what discipleship is all about. It's saying, look, man, I know you're anxious. I know you're afraid. I know you're devastated by this. But you don't have anything to be afraid of, man, because one with God is a majority. <laughs> you got the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, right? And this servant, Elijah, you know, he had to chuckle. He said, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> you know, in the South, that's a way of saying, you idiot. <laughs> bless his heart. He doesn't know, does he? He doesn't know what I know. He hasn't seen what I've seen. Because you know what I think? Let me just be really relevant. I don't think the servant of the man of God had been doing his devotions. I don't think he was doing spiritual disciplines. I don't think he was reading the Bible and praying and journaling. I don't think he was doing any of that stuff. I think he was just following Elijah around and eating up whatever crumbs he could. And I know a lot of Christians just like that. And when something like all these trials and pressures comes, they freak out. They panic. Because God is not their glory and their shield and the lifter of their head. Something else is. And to get God back at the center, it takes work. I'm not saying this is you, you earn your salvation. I'm not saying that. I'll talk about that in a minute. But you're like, we just finished this. Yeah, I will. Hang on. Hang on. So Elijah prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Man, I get goosebumps reading that. <laughs> And you know what, this, you can read this on your own. You know what the servant of God probably said? He goes, okay, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Then he's like, then, you know, he's probably taunting them. He goes, hey, soldiers, I know a secret. I wouldn't invade the city if I were you. Because that's the reality, guys. That if Paul prayed to the, for the Ephesians that the eyes, their spiritual eyes would be open and they would see that God is their refuge. Like, look, listen, guys, it says we are more than conquerors in Christ. You know what that means? It doesn't just mean, well, you're not a loser then. It means, dude, you like ran up the score on the other team. It means like any opposer, any adversary is going to be embarrassed. It means to get to you, they got to go through God. That's what it means. Every possible spiritual enemy that you could ever face was taken care of on the cross. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. And the Bible says, if God is for you, who in the world can be against you? And the answer is nobody can. No matter, I don't care whatever the, somebody always thinks they have an exception. Like, pastor, you don't understand. No, I don't, but God does. And that's the point. You're surrounded by some pressure I didn't name this morning. I get it, but it doesn't matter. 
Paul said, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. He gives this long list in Romans 8, and then being the inspired apostle he is, he said, and, and anything else that I missed. <laughs> nothing, nothing above, nothing below, no principality, no power, not sword, not nakedness, not peril, not angels, not false teaching. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That became more real to David than those enemies did. And I got to be honest with you, we're moving into the last point here. Oh, man. Um, the, the last point is the priority. See, everybody in here, don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to be faced by all these pressures and yet lay down and give it all to God? You do, don't you? Who in the right mind would say, no, I don't care much for that. Can we just close? No, you want that. But guys, listen, this is, it's a fight. It's a fight. So many of us, we have like a... <laughs> This is, this is what happens when an emergency comes. We got, and I put a Bible in there. I, I couldn't find a Jesus to put in there. <laughs> but it's like, we have a God just for emergencies, you know? Guys, Christianity doesn't work that way. You don't read your Bible for three months or pray, and then you're surrounded by pressure, and you're like, okay, da-da, let me, ow, that hurt. <laughs> da-da, what happened to David, God? Do that to me. But guys, this is just one of like 75 Psalms David wrote. The dude was always reflecting and meditating on God. I mean, he said this hundreds of other ways. God, you're my refuge. You're my fortress. You're my shield. You restore me. You're my shepherd. You lead me in green pastures and make me lie down beside still waters. My cup runneth over. David made a habit of this. David knew his God so well, and that's why God became so much more real to him. Tim Keller talks about a time when he was a pastor in Virginia, and some parents in the congregation brought their, brought their teenage daughter to him, and she was depressed. And he said, man, I was young and in the ministry. I didn't know really what the heck I was doing, but I'm like, okay, now you're a professing believer, right? She said, yes. He said, so you know Jesus loves you, and he, he, he died for you, and you're going to go to heaven when you die, and you have all these promises from him. And she said, yeah, I know, I know all that. And he said, Okay. Um, she said, I know all of that. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus died for me. I know I've been redeemed. I, I know I put all my faith in Jesus. Um, she said, but what good is that when no boy in the entire school will even notice me? Now, before you judge her, Keller tells that story in a book on preaching that I read. And he says, see, what had happened was those things were true, but that truth about no boy noticing her, that was more real to her at that moment in her heart than that beautiful truth was. That was more beautiful to her than that. That was more powerful to her than that. That was at the center. That was her glory. That was her shield. Guys, listen, I'll, I'll tell you again, if you put anything else at the center of your life, eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to chew you up and spit you out. You're either going to be a proud person because everything's fly for you at the moment, or you're going to be dejected and in despair because things aren't going good. It's a terrible place to live. But this is, this, it's good for, and we're going to be talking, I'm going to cast some vision next week. Please come back next week for part two of this message. Different passage, some more of the same truths. Because we're in our fifth year as a church. And we've gotten a lot of people that have came here and they have a lot of hurt in their history. And some of them didn't grow up in a, in a, in a church environment. Some of them did and were harmed by it. Others are like a first generation Christian in their family. They didn't grow up and, and, and get discipled by their parents so they don't understand, hey, look, being a Christian means there's a pursuit. When Jesus walked by Matthew, the tax collector, 
He didn't say, hey, Matthew, sit there and I'll take care of everything. What did he say? Follow me. He said, follow me. There's a pursuit. There's a pursuit. Matthew 11, there's this place where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That has like bothered theologians for decades. Like, what is he talking? Christianity is kind of more of a, they're not saying to be violent. No, Jesus, I think, is using a metaphor for all the crowds that came to see him and wanted to press into Jesus. The violent pushed through and had access to Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We have access to God through Christ. But listen, spiritual disciplines is you putting yourself in a position where you're going to receive the benefits of being in communion with Jesus. That means like reading your Bible and spending time praying and having a schedule, just something as simple as having a Bible reading plan and sticking to it. Or saying, you know what? My community group is going to help me. I don't really feel like going tonight, but I know it's not going to be a waste of time. I'm going to leave helped in some way. God's going to surprise, that's what I pray. Like, Lord, surprise me tonight. Share with me a truth about yourself that comes from a surprising source and just remind me again why it is that we do this with all six of our kids, because it's hard, right? I'm going to meet with my Christian friend today, and I, you know, man, there's a hundred other things I could do. That's right, there are. Those hundred other things aren't going to put God back at the center of your life. And when an emergency comes, you're going to get swallowed, man. You're going to get swept up into the wall of that hurricane. Because I see, I have never in my life met a Christian that told me, you know what, pastor, I've been reading my Bible faithfully and praying regularly for the last six months, and it's a complete waste of time. I have never heard that in my life. And I would even challenge you with this. Put God to the test. Put God to the test and see what he will do in your life. Not like, don't test him like that tried and trusted, trusted uh, secret chili recipe that may make you ashamed at the end of the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember when David, last illustration, we'll, we'll close. Do you remember whenever David was a shepherd and the Philistines were lined up in the, in, in the valley and Goliath, their champion, had been taunting Israel for 40 days? you remember this? And David came down there and he goes, who's this uncircumcised Gentile? Uh, I'll take him out. I will take him out. And they're like, isn't that cute? Bless his heart. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, I will. Really, really. You don't understand. I've like killed lions and bears and like tigers. And they're like, who is this kid? And he goes, no, just, just, you know, where's he at? I'll, I'll go get him. And they're like, well, okay, man, you little idiot. If you want to try. And remember what Saul did? He said, here, David, you're going to need this. Put my armor on. Can you imagine Saul? It says he was a head and shoulders taller than any other soldier. And he put that on the little, little, uh, shepherd boy. And you remember what David said? He had him on. It would have been so comical. I want to ask God to replay that DVD when I get to heaven. Here's the little shepherd boy, and he's like clinging, 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 clinging. And you remember what he says? He goes, I can't do this. And he says something next that just is, is so astonishing. He said, I can't wear these. I haven't tested them. I haven't tested them. These haven't proven themselves in battle. If I wear this, I'm going to end up dead, and all of you are going to be slaughtered. So you know what David did? You remember what he did? He took those off and threw them down and said, thanks, king, but no thanks. And he pulled something out of his pocket. And he said, this, on the other hand, is tested. This is my shepherd's sling. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, no, no, no. I've used this many times, man. I've like laid down some lions and bears. This will do the trick. Just trust me. Test God. Test God the way that David tested God. People may laugh at you, the thing that you're trusting in. 
But we'll see who's laughing when the pressure's come and you're able to say, God is my glory and he is my shield and he is the lifter of my head. I'm not gonna be ashamed because of this. And guys, do you know what a shield is? By the way, you know somebody else had a walk of shame outside of Jerusalem a few thousand years after this? Somebody walked out carrying a cross on their back, being rejected by the very people they came to save, humiliated, beat, bloodied to a pulp that didn't resemble a man, had their beard plucked out, were mocked and ridiculed and made fun of, and he walked with that cross on his back all the way outside Jerusalem, probably the same track that David walked outside Jerusalem, but he didn't have anybody to lift his face. He hung on that cross as our substitute. Do you know what a shield is when David says, you're my shield? You know what a shield does? It takes the blows. You got a shield and you're out there in battle and somebody swings a broadsword, that shield takes the blow. It gets splintered, it gets beat down and beat up, and you don't. That's the point. You know what a shield is? It's your substitute. A shield takes the blows and gets beat up and destroyed so you don't have to be, and that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did for you and I, and that's why he, he had better be your glory. And if he is, then he will be the lifter of your head, and he'll continue to be your shield. Is he? What's the heaviest thing in your life today? What's your way? What's the thing that makes you count? Is it that you're a joint heir with Christ, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're blood-bought, you've been sealed, you've been adopted, you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, you have all these promises because of Christ. Man, how heavy is that? How heavy is that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these truths and this reality. God, we want this reality to be our reality. We want to know that even though we're surrounded by all these pressures and maybe these enemies and this trauma and this bad news and this pain and this hurt, Lord, that's not the heaviest thing in our life. The heaviest thing in our life is that you stepped in and you cleansed us and you were our shield and you were our glory. And you said, I want you. I've seen everything about you, how dark and vile and sinful, and I still want you. And you traded places with us, Lord. You became our substitute and you became our glory. And Lord, I know that there are people sitting in this building right now this morning, and that is not true of them, God. They could not say that this morning. Even some who are Christians who have just drifted, Lord, you are not the heaviest thing and the weightiest thing in their life. And because of that, there's pain and there's heartache and there's confusion and there's sadness and they cannot overcome it on their own. They need your help, Lord. They need your help. They need repentance. They need forgiveness. And they need to, to sit down and they need to get a journal out or their computer and a cup of coffee or whatever it is. They need to see, Lord, this year, by God's grace, is going to be different. I'm going to start this year out, even though it's the 19th of January. I'm going to fight to make you and keep you in the center of my life so that I can see you clearly. Would you help them do that? Will this morning even be the time when they repent and ask your forgiveness for not doing that? And now your word has become clear and come to us. And may we just reflect on that this morning. I pray in Jesus.